0: You're listening to the Northwest Allen County Schools Educator Spotlight. This week's guest is Carroll High School English teacher, Carrie Weishart. The host for the
1: Educator Spotlight is Northwest Allen County Schools Curriculum, Instruction, and Technology Integration Coordinator, Andy Dietrich.
0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the second episode of the Northwest Allen County Schools Educator Spotlight. I'm Andy Dietrich. I'm a curriculum coordinator for Northwest Allen County Schools and a former science teacher. And as I said on the first episode, the mission of this podcast is basically to tell the story of the great teachers and administrators that we have in Northwest Allen County Schools. The depth of talent in this district is astounding. And in this episode, we're going to talk with arguably the best teacher in the district (laughs) and a favorite of mine, teaches English at the high school, Mrs. Carrie Weishart. Mrs. Weishart, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm so honored that you asked me to be part of this.
0: My first question for you is, what drew you to becoming a teacher?
1: Well, I always tell my students a funny story that when I was a kid, I wanted to be the first missionary astronaut teacher on Mars. And I became a teacher very early. So I had a little brother. He was five years younger than me. And in our basement, I had my own schoolroom. I had bulletin boards. I had teacher's editions. I had worksheets. I had everything. In fact, when people would visit us, they thought my mom homeschooled us. Um, So I have really wanted to be a teacher since I was really small. I've always loved inspiring, mentoring, motivating. And my brother, I don't know that I inspired or motivated him. Um, I don't think he wanted to do all the homework I gave him. Um, But I've been teaching for a long time.
0: (laughs) You basically, you're telling me you're just born to be a teacher. Yes. (laughs) So you graduate high school and it's time to become a teacher. So what was your educational path to get you to this point?
1: In high school, I was actually being groomed. This is kind of an unknown. I was being groomed to be an opera singer. I attended Northern Illinois University as a high school student, and I was being mentored by an opera professor there to go into opera. And, um, I was doing a lot of training in high school, but I got to college and I just knew, I don't know if it's that I was reminded of my passion as a kid. So I originally was a vocal performance major in college and I just couldn't get away from the fact that I wanted to be a teacher. So I decided to keep my vocal performance major. Um, but I also added an English education major. So I, my undergraduate degree, I had 230 credit hours of, of a double major. And I was certified then, um, I could have been certified at, to teach music as well, but I love words. And I love the fact that English gives this huge opportunity to talk about not only books that we read and articles that we read, but to talk about real life. And so from there, um, my first uh, teaching job was actually theater and English. So I was the theater director and then I also taught English. So that led me, um, being a theater department chair and an English teacher, to getting my master's at uh, the Ohio State University. (laughs) Oh, right? That's one of my
0: favorites.
1: (laughs) I know. So I got my master's degree in teaching and learning at Ohio State, but also with an emphasis on theater. So what I love about my background is I feel that I have kind of a, a multitude of a lot of directions I'm coming from, if that makes sense. So I have not only my music and theater background, but I also have my English background. And so all of those really work closely together in my communication as a teacher. So not only in how I communicate and present to the classroom, but um, also the techniques that I use.
0: And that leads me into my, to the next question I was going to ask, because I've always thought a very engaging teacher has to be entertaining You know, I've always said teacher is basically a comedian given seven shows a day. So how has your, and talk about this a little bit more detail, because you gave us a hint of it, your theater background, plus your love of literature and words, that has to make you a really engaging teacher, which you are obviously. So give us more detail on how you do that on a daily basis.
1: So I think there's a lot of different parts that play into this, but In theater, I took a master's level course from one of my favorite professors of all time. His name was Brian Edmiston. He's actually um, one of the foremost um, theorists and and educators at Ohio State, and he's from Ireland, um, so all over the world, in what's called dramatic inquiry. And we all know that when students are interested in what they're doing, when they're asking the questions, they're more engaged. Um, When they're curious, they're engaged. And he was the first professor that really helped me to see more of an engaging way of learning where it starts with what the students want to know. And so that theater background of then helping the students to engage not only um, on paper with a pencil, but with their bodies. So I have a philosophy of teaching um, that is every 15 minutes, we switch it up. And we not only engage our minds and our, like I said, pencil and paper, but we engage our bodies. So, a lot of what I learned in theater um, helped me to understand that there's a point where our brains fill up. I mean, there's even brain science that proves this, you know, that we can no longer take in more information. And so, if we get up, we get the blood pumping, we move around, we engage with other people, we communicate night and day difference. So in as much as I might do some things in the classroom to keep students engaged and involved, and I've been known to do a lot of things, stand on tables, lay on floors, whatever I can do to get their attention. I think a lot of my theater background really helped me understand that the classroom is not about me, but it's about the community and culture of all of us and the way we engage with each other. So whether we do brain breaks curricularly or we do them completely unrelated to the curriculum, I find that kids take risks more and they're more involved when they have relationships and they're up and moving and they're engaging with not only me, but one another.
0: So you're talking about a student-centered classroom. And in my own experience, more of them and less of me helps learning become much more concrete and it has a tendency to stick in the kids. And so I think that's kind of your most important message is student centered. What can I do to serve them? How can I serve them better? And that way it's going to take you away from, I'm not a slave to the whiteboard. It's not me throwing information out at them. And then they're supposed to, you know, like a sponge soak it in. And Casey talked about this on the last episode is How can I get them to perform to their best? And it's the them becomes more important and it's not about me. Does that sound like that's you?
1: Absolutely. So there's a few things that I would fall on my sword for when it comes to being a teacher. And one of them is the why. So how does that connect to a student-centered classroom? Several ways how do we engage our students? Well, let's, let's start at the bottom line. I'm going to change my answer up a little bit here. Start at the bottom line of, of safety. So student centered means that my students feel safe in my classroom. I remember the first time one of my master's professors said that, and I was a little skeptical because I thought I'm a high school teacher. What does safety have to do with my kiddos? I mean, I understand elementary, but then it started resonating with me that, um, if my kid, Uh, my student sitting in a classroom doesn't feel like he can express an opinion or much more than that, challenge me or ask me a question that, that goes back to Mrs. Weishart, why are we learning this? So ultimately I started introducing my classroom that way. I'd say to kids, guys, you can ask me why anytime. And if I can't answer that question for you, then we shouldn't be doing this. And so We've gotten to the point where my students are pretty open to do that. I'll give them an assignment. I don't believe in busy work. I feel like all work should be meaningful. So I'll give them an assignment. And I've had students ask me, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this assignment? And we'll sit together. And, and usually most of the time I throw it back at them first and say, all right, you tell me why we're doing this and and really getting them to the bottom line of being their own thinkers, um, not spitting back to me what they think I want to hear. A a wise mentor teacher gave me some great advice. Uh, She used to teach AP language, the same course that I teach. And she said, Carrie, the sooner that you can be okay with students being smarter than you, and the sooner that you can be okay with sharing power with them in the classroom, the better your classroom is going to be.
0: That's brilliant. That is so important. You are not the dispenser of education. I think we often have teachers, and you've probably remembered having some of those in your own educational background, where the teacher believes that the learning begins and ends with them. And that is by far not the case. You're trying to develop lifelong learners. And I love the phrase that you said, become your own thinker. That is so important in the modern age. Kudos to you for that one. That is awesome.
1: Absolutely. Well, and I I've had a lot of wise mentors in my life. You know, it takes us a while. You know this, being an educator for a long time, to really come into ourselves and, and figure out who we are and how to be the best teacher. But as soon, Andy, as soon as I started sharing power, letting go of my pride, being okay with being wrong, allowing the students to lead. One of my favorite things I do in the classroom is my seniors start the class every single day. They On Monday, they do a motivational moment. Tuesdays, they talk about a TED Talk. Wednesdays, they do a show and tell. And Fridays, they actually lead our current events. I've realized more and more, the more ownership we can give to kids, the more we can let them know that, hey, I may have more experience than you and you need to trust in that sometimes, but I'm not always smarter and I don't always know the best way. So if we can make this a collaboration, if we can work together, then this is going to be the best learning experience you've ever had.
0: You know, and and it sounds to me like you understand that we are training kids to become an adult. And if you want your kids to act like an adult, You have to treat them like an adult. And that's exactly what's happening in that senior classroom because one of your kids happens to be mine. And I know (laughs) that he appreciates, and I know I appreciate that you are letting your kids learn and practice being an adult. They're tackling adult subject matter where it's, it's, you've got to be able to see both sides and make a cohesive argument, but you're also letting them learn how to lead and collaboratively make decisions and that's that is fantastic. I think we need more of that in education. What do you think?
1: <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> you know, and I think it's been a grappling issue, you know, teachers are always trying to, you know, have that good balance. But I will tell you, I've made a few even changes in the last 2 years. So Regarding you know theater and communication, Andy, I tried something new and I no longer allow students to raise their hands in the classroom. Um, I'm really trying to foster a room where you know if you've ever been in a situation where you've had to hold up your hand to wait to talk, all you're thinking about when you're holding up that hand is what you have to say, and you're not concentrating at all on what anyone else is saying. So really trying to build this collaborative place where they have to really listen to know when they're going to be able to speak. And it's been funny because I have, I'm having to retrain them because, you know, they, I'll say, you don't have to raise your, your hand, but I've seen this amazing kind of collaboration take place where they have to really listen to know when it's an appropriate time for them to speak, especially in a classroom of 25 kids. So, you know, really giving them more ownership and leadership, but also teaching them some of those soft skills in the process, you know, communication, listening, um, when to speak, um, how to really, really engage with other students. Um, It's been a fun experiment.
0: Well, you remember last spring when I brought that concept of the spider web discussions to you?
1: Yep. That's actually where a lot of that came from.
0: Yeah. And and, uh, (laughs) that was one of the most appealing parts to me as I learned about that technique was you know, you're letting kids learn how to become effective listeners and effective communicators. And you've got to give kids a chance to practice those. You, you you can't expect them to know how to do that unless you let them learn through trial and error. And that's when you talk about how you've seen the growth, you've seen the trial and error. I, I assume beginning of the year, they weren't very good at that. And no. you've seen steady <laughs> growth at it over the time, haven't you?
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I And I think too... I'm looking at, you know, we still have the opportunity. We're, we're gatekeepers. I think you and I talked about this once. Like, as teachers, we're gatekeepers of, you know, not only content education. In fact, sometimes I feel like content is almost at the bottom rung because coupled with that content that we're teaching them are all of the skills that are incorporated mm-hmm. in that. And and so we're teaching these kids to become, you know, citizens of the world. And so, how do we do that in the way they speak to one another, in the way they research, you know, in the way that they engage? All of those things are so important. and and so, I, yeah, I've been grappling with that, but i I think the kids are coming into themselves. you know, they're realizing who they are and how they can contribute to a society outside of school.
0: Soft skills are so more important than the content skills. Content skills, you're going to continue to develop those as you study whatever trade or whatever subject that you want to become a professional in, but it's never too early to get those soft skills. They're so important. They're so important. All right. So let's change. Let's change gears here. Okay. Your husband's a pastor. Yes. So you have been lucky enough to live in multiple States, maybe up to seven, if I can remember. So therefore you've lived in seven different States and multiple communities and you've taught in every single one of those. Clearly, not every school, not every community is the same. So in that background of being in lots of different places, how has that impacted your perspective of students in your classroom?
1: Even though I've been in a variety of schools, from socioeconomic differences to poverty, um, I've taught in six different schools and lived in nine states. Um, And so even though I've been all over from the south to to the north, kids are all the same really with these basic things, <laughs> um, kids want to know that you care about them as a person and not just a student. And they also want to be heard. But in those different scenarios, what I found out is that life always trumps school in every single situation. So when I had a student who came to school and literally the night before his his family had all been sitting around the coffee table doing drugs Together, And then when I had another student who came to school and that night before he had literally carried his best friend into the emergency room riddled with bullets, those kids still life trumps school. And so the fact that they can't really operate in my classroom in the content because life is getting in the way still happens at Carroll High School where there's a kid who's so stressed out about getting into college and they're so concerned about their success that they are thinking about suicide once again life gets in the way so i've just learned that all the kids are the same the masks they wear are different so how do we get to know them as people and not just as a student and how do we hear them how do we really hear who they are and get to know who they are because they just desperately want to be heard
0: every human being wants to be seen they -hmm. want to be known and they want to be understood and that Mm -hmm. doesn't matter if you're two years old or you're 200 years old you want your voice to be heard and to be valued and i think that's so important in this modern age it's so too many electronic devices it's too hustle and bustle there's a lot of pressure on you and so for these kids to know that somebody is listening to them and cares what they say goes a long way. And we've seen that with the unified flag football, where the kids, these special ed kids, you're you're listening to them and you're getting to know them and then they know yeah. that you care. It's that absolutely. same concept. That can that can affect you no matter where you oh at. absolutely. That's a that's a great great way to look at it. You know, you bring all those perspectives. It doesn't matter what community you come from. Every kid has the same needs.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that, I mean, Andy, I've sat on so many steering committees. I will tell you getting my license in every state is completely different. You know, there are different standards and different things you have to do. And um, so, so what changes, what's interesting is what changes is our expectations or requirements when it comes to standards. But like I said, not the kids. Because these these adolescents who are figuring out who they are, you know, bottom line, now, life, like I was telling you, my, my I tell the kids, I understand that life trumps school. So, you know, if you have a kid who's at home Andy, lately I've gotten essays from kids um, whose parents are, you know, alcoholics and, and, you know, victims of abuse and rape and, you know, all kinds of things. And if we can understand that these kids are people before their students and life, trumps school, I feel like we can help them get the content because they feel like we care about that. And we understand that those things, I mean, imagine our own lives. How many times have we come to work and that life thing, that life thing is so much bigger than what we're doing at school. So I guess it's about empathy. It's about relationships. It's about really creating a culture in our classrooms where kids feel like, Hey, I'm safe here. I'm valued here. And my teacher knows more than just my name. So every quarter at least, I have my students write me checkup letters where they're able to one, ask questions about the content, because some of them are too, you know, nervous to, to speak face to face. We're working on that. But also just, hey, what's going on in your life? You know, what are you doing right now? And they'll say, hey, I have a job. One time I had a student tell me, you know, I got up at four this morning to go pick up my mom from the bar. OK, so if that student's falling asleep, you know what? It probably has nothing to do with me and everything to do with what's going on in their lives.
0: You know, getting to know your kids are so important. And I noticed when I flipped my classroom, when I was in the still in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. It opened up the opportunity to actually talk to my kids every day, not necessarily about biology, but just to talk to them as a human. I learned so much more about them. And, you know, you talked about that kid who life's getting in the way. He has to get up really early. So then he's sleepy in your class because, you know, that backstory, you can easily make accommodations to help that kid be a success. And that's where that teacher becomes the partner. The guide to help you learn. And I, I'm, that's a really important story. Empathy has been one of the things that I've been grappling with myself personally, but it's made sense to me because in the last year, year and a half of my job, as I learn more of how important empathy is, I totally get what you're talking about. It's so much more important that if you just know and love on those kids, they'll rise to the occasion. It may take them a little bit longer they're going to do it.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you know, in my coursework. So I have a pretty rigorous class that I teach. You know, AP Language and Composition. So these seniors, you know, are 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 doing a lot of hard work, but here's what's interesting. You know, in AP Lang and Comp, we we do a lot with current events and we read nonfiction and they're learning a lot about perspectives. But empathy is really the key here. We look at our society and how we're having so much trouble not polarizing one another, you know, from one side to the next. And again, we're gatekeepers. How am I teaching my students? So when I step into their shoes and say, you know what, I get it. You were up at four in the morning picking your mom up from the bar so she didn't have to drive drunk. Okay, now let's look at, we don't understand what this politician or or this person, you know, maybe we don't know what shoes they're in, but can we take a moment to try to consider it? Can we take a moment to come to the table? That doesn't mean I have to agree. A lot of kids are convinced that if they listen, then they're conceding to the other side. But when we listen, it makes our argument stronger. So this whole idea of empathy also helps prepare these students because we're sending them out into a world that's already super polarized. So how can we help them be be strong in their convictions and yet kind in their associations?
0: I have a social studies background besides my science background, and I've always been interested in learning what the other side politically thinks. And that's basically out of my own curiosity, but it's also part of that strengthening your argument. If I Mm -hmm. understand where they're coming from and why they believe or do what they do, then my counter argument can be stronger and the dialogue can be better and empathy empathy is so, so important. I I can't, I can't stress it enough. If anybody's going to take anything away from this podcast today Mm is you need to show empathy towards your fellow man. They will work with you so much better and they will rise to the occasion if you know, see, and understand them.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we, we want administrators to have that kind of empathy for us but we don't always lend that same empathy to our kiddos, you know? And so I think that's something I'm learning how to do. Um, I think we're always in process, but in this course that I teach, it's the bottom line. I was in um, an AP training this summer and all of the teachers, we talked about how we really in this society are, are the gatekeepers for that. We're, we're teaching those, those skills, those, that ability to say, Hey, I may not understand you, but add the yet, (laughs) you know what I mean? Because the hardest question to ask someone when you disagree with them is tell me more. I really want to understand, you know, rather than attacking the person. So, um, those are just some things that I'm learning myself. and, And what's cool is we can learn alongside the kids and we can all come to those conclusions together.
0: Yeah, and I think when you do that, and you know, when you talked about, you said not yet. That's the mm-hmm. growth mindset. And when you learn with the kids, and you're comfortable, like you know what, I don't know the answer to that. Let's go figure it out. Or wow. a kid goes, um, I don't know if that's the right answer, and you're like, Well, you know what, I'm pretty sure it is. But if you find that I'm wrong, please let me know because I want to know. You know that that vulnerability that you show them. And your willingness to fail along with them and your willingness to just learn together, you're modeling those skills that you want those kids to be able to demonstrate. And uh, too many classrooms that I've been in as a student, and I've seen some teachers do this in my my own, you know, now role as a curriculum coordinator, is that that teacher desk is almost like a line of demarcation. Students stay on one side and I stay on the other. That is not a student-centered classroom. And that leads a power dynamic that I don't think is good for learning. You don't operate that way. You're going to go out in the you're going to go out in the weeds with the kids, and you, everybody's going to get their their hands dirty together. And you get rid of that power dynamic where the kids are safe. They're now safe to question you. They're now safe to pull their soul into you and let you know what's going on in their life. I think that's really important: is that you're in there with them as a member of the team. You're the leader, but you're still a member of the team. And I think kids appreciate that.
1: Well, and I try to reward, and you know, with words, when kids actually do push back, because I think we've conditioned, you know, I remember as a, a kid. I was really annoyingly curious. I remember my third year, third grade teacher, I was always desperately trying to start all these projects. (laughs) Like I wanted to interview the whole school about things. And I remember being shut down, you know, like, Carrie, come on, get back to what you're supposed to be doing. And I think some of that has fueled um, me really wanting to release kids to say, yeah, let's do this. You know, um, we've conditioned them not to ask questions. Uh, we've conditioned them to basically spit back to us what we tell them to say. And uh, I, I have so many kids who come to me and ask me a question, but they'll always apologize. I'm sorry, Mrs. Weisheart. I'm sorry to bother you. When Andy, did we educate these kids to think? that they're a bother. When have we educated the curiosity out of them? We've educated the creativity out of them where they think they have to say what we want them to say. The kids who are the most curious or, or the most um, excited or even the ones that push back the most often get punished. I, I remember always feeling like I was, I was annoying, you know? And, and so I stopped asking questions and, and, and so how have we done kids a disservice by making them feel like a bother, you know? So I had to learn quickly that it's not about me. So when a kid pushes back or he's disrespectful or he seems to be having a problem, you know, it's, it's not about me. It's about that kid. So how can I redirect them or how can I engage them or how can I find a way that can then turn them around and usually it works. I mean, I've messed up so many times, Andy, with that, but I'm trying hard to let them know I'm, I'm just there to serve. You know,
0: I love your growth mindset. I love you. I love your, <laughs> you want to experiment. You want to give up control. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. I'll try something different the next time. Yeah. Oh, what a great model. Oh, I've model.
1: fallen on my face so many now, times. Don't you we know? all,
0: don't we all. And, <laughs> And I like. I think the key to that is you have to be humble, and you've got to understand that, dude. I'm going to screw up. It's okay. People screw up. It's okay. In fact, (laughs) I was over at Carroll Middle School this week, and in the seventh grade hallway, they have a bulletin board, and it's called Famous Failures, and it's got all these famous artists and inventors and athletes. And so, for example, like Henry Ford, his first five businesses went. under, he lost money and and he finally made it. And so failure is not the end. It's kind of the beginning. You just, it's from that design and design thinking process. Okay. I'm going to learn from that. I'm going to try something different. So let's change gears here again. And I'm sure the listeners have picked up that you're incredibly passionate about what you do. All right. And Mm -hmm. so, so one of my favorite things about you is actually how passionate you are about everything that you do and your incredibly varied interests, which I think has come across a little bit. And I also love how you are so willing to share your passion and your varied interest with others—not only your students, but basically the world—because you, you've got a blog. You've recently had a, a book published. Uh, you are a public speaker that has speaking engagements around the Midwest and around the country. So tell us how you take that and meld and put it into something that you can sprinkle into your lessons.
1: <laughs> well, um, I I had an interesting experience when I was, well, not interesting, a devastating experience when I was 22 years old. And this this will get around to what the question that you've asked, but I lost my father to leukemia when I was very young. In fact, 10 days after I got married, uh, he had walked me down the aisle at my wedding. Um, an ambulance had actually transported him to my wedding so he could walk me down the aisle. And then he died the day we came back from my honeymoon. And since that day, um, and and from then on, I, I've kind of incorporated a couple mantras in my life. One is um, you can't always choose what happens to you, but you can choose how you respond to it. And then the other is today is the best day ever because if today were my last day, I would want it to be my best day. Therefore, today is the best day ever. And and both of those mantras are part of the book that I wrote. My book is 21 ways to live this best day ever adventure. You know, how can I choose even in the midst of really hard times? Um, how can I choose joy? How can I live this life? And so all of that From that devastating experience I had at 22, and then again, about 10 years ago, I faced my own scare uh, with cancer. And both of those life experiences kind of catapulted me into this realization that not only am I teaching students content, but I'm teaching them modeling for them. So what are teachers? We're models in ways, like you said, with failure, but also modeling for them, hey, I had these devastating experiences but it's all okay. You know, last year, a student, uh, Corbin, interviewed me as a mentor. And um, he said, Mrs. Weishardt, I'm going to ask you a question. And he said, it's it's probably a really hard question. So if you don't want to answer it, then you don't have to. And I thought, oh, great. You know, what is he going to ask me? Is this 18-year-old kid, you know, asking me a question? And he said, Mrs. Weisheart, it seems to me that much of the way that you motivate and inspire us in the classroom goes back to the fact that you lost your dad when you were 22.
0: How insightful for that kid.
1: Oh my gosh. It was, Andy, it's the hardest question I've ever been asked in my life by an 18 year old kid. And so his question was, so if you could take it back, would you? And I sat there in silence and I was tearing up. He basically asked me if I could have my dad right beside me now, the man who inspired me both in life and death. Would I? And, you know, Andy, I thought about it for what felt like a really long time. And finally, I came to the conclusion. I said, you know, Corbin, would I love to have my dad back? Absolutely. But Corbin, the hard thing for us to grasp is that we will all die. And I said, for my father, that was his time. And no, I don't think I would because everything that he taught me, both in life and death, have been the catalyst for my life. And it was hard because absolutely. I want my dad back. Absolutely. But, but I I began to see this whole mantra that I teach them, you know, you can't choose what happens, but you can, you can choose how you respond to it. You know, that day, my dad died. I wasn't happy, you know, happiness happens to me, but, but what I do with that is all my choice. And so that's that message that's the message that i was able to take to a prison in september and i was able you know i've been able to take all over it's just basically what have i learned and and what devastation have i experienced but that i can also say hey guys it was hard and it was bad but here's what i did with it and i didn't always do it right but my life has been the best day ever because i know if tomorrow I was gone. I want today to be the best one. So I incorporate that in my classroom
0: all the time. Uh, That's awesome. That's all I'm going to say. That's awesome. (laughs) All right. So uh, normally I don't end a conversation like that, but I'm going to leave this one in here. All right. I don't care how long this podcast is going. This is a fantastic conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you and I have both taught at Carroll High School for a number of years. And one of my favorite thing about Carroll kids is they're pretty nice kids. They have a good heart. Uh, You see that up and down the grades. You see it in different clubs and different sports. Carroll kids, as a whole, they're probably the nicest kids you could ever be around. You've helped make that even better with your Ractivist club. Tell us about that because... That's starting to spread down into our elementary schools and middle schools. Uh, it's amazing. So explain to our <laughs> listeners what the heck that's all about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So four years ago, um, I was at the freshman center and I just saw, you know, you, you start looking around and I saw a need for, you know, how can we create a culture, okay, of kindness at Carol? You know, often we do bullying training and I think it's really important, but Something that I've learned to do in, in life is instead of of bringing out what we shouldn't do, let's teach kids what we should do. And so Racktivists came out of that. So I'm part of the National Racktivist Organization. I actually was hired by them to write their elementary, secondary, college, and community curriculum uh, for the International Random Acts of Kindness Foundation.
0: So before you get too deep into that stuff, what does Rack mean? Because you say oh, RACtivist, we sure. we get the... The activist part of it, but what's the rack part?
1: So rack is random acts of kindness, and so we're random acts of kindness activists, and you know we often spend a lot of time telling kids what they shouldn't do, but rack is what you should do, and and so I thought you know let's let's just try this. So the first time I had the club, I threw a bunch of red signs around the school, and I just opened it up, and Andy, it was amazing. We filled that room. With so many kids that we had to go to a bigger room. And kids just came out of the woodwork to be part of this club. And what I think is interesting is that often teenagers, they want to do something good, they don't know how. And so, Racktivist is our mission statement is just this it's to create a culture of kindness at Carol. And oftentimes we'll have lots of groups, Hey, would reactivists help with this? And, and it's not that we don't want to help it's, we've got to stick. I don't want to ever have mission drift. Our goal, our vision is to create a culture of kindness at Carol. And if that means we have five kids doing it, or we have 200 kids doing it, I've always told my leaders, if we impact one kid this year, that's all that matters. So yeah, we are officially now in every school in NACS. Ractivist has sprinkled down maybe there's one I think we're in every school but one because one elementary has something similar you know that they call something different but yeah so we are and in fact the Ractivist leaders are all meeting um, in a couple of weeks to have a round table all of the sponsors from the different schools to see how we can continue to create a culture of kindness in NACS.
0: And I love how it's, it's very student led for the most part. You know, you're, you're kind of the sponsor. You kind of guide them. You've got connections with the national organization, but you put a lot of the stuff on the kids. Again, let's train them how to be adults. Let's let them act like adults. Let's let them learn through trial and error. I love it. And in the, in the elementary schools, they have this mantra of treat people right and do the right thing. Yes. And then that, you yeah. don't hear that when you get to high school because the game's kind of changed. You know what? We should bring that back because it's true. Do the right thing. Treat people right. And it's just about building empathy. Mrs. Weishard, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners?
1: Oh, no. I just think that I am humbled and honored, first of all, that, Andy, that you would ask me to do this Um I love this job, but to me, it's not a job. I mean, I just, I can't believe I I told my kids this morning and they laugh at me, Andy, but I said, guys, I got up this morning and I couldn't wait to see your faces (laughs) And and they laugh at me, but I mean it. I just can't believe I get to do this job every day. I love everything about it. And I think this generation, we hear a lot about them that's negative, but what I see, are a bunch of world changers who are growing and who are going to really make a difference in the world. So if I get to have like a tiny part of that, that's enough for me.
0: Oh, <laughs> I agree with the, the young people say millennials are so bad. And you know, the seniors that you have, they're the last of the millennials. So I don't even know what you call the people born after 2001. I Gen Z.
1: they Yeah. They're going to be
0: awesome. Millennials is- are awesome. It's, you know what? They're, they're the most compassionate they're the most open and they're the most ah they're almost like calm's not quite the word they're they're a little bit more resilient than people give them credit for i think so too so, i think so too. Karen. So
1: guess what I get to do now? I get to teach another class. Yeah. So I'm off to,
0: te- that's to awesome. teach a class. That is so awesome. <laughs> thanks for taking time out for your day. I was really looking forward to this podcast all week. I couldn't wait. And it's, I'm not going to do much editing. This is just going to be, <laughs> so that's just the way it's going to go. But an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for accepting to be on here. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. So thanks again.
1: Thanks, Andy. Thank you for listening to the Northwest Allen County Schools Educator Spotlight. New episodes are produced monthly.
0: I go in and edit out the stupid stuff. So, <laughs> well, like maybe- all, this, all this stuff will never make it in there. Right. For sure. No. Yeah. But, but sometimes I take some of this and I put it at the end as a hidden gem. <laughs> oh, that'll be fantastic.